Well, what does it take for you to see the hand of the Lord upon you? It's always easier to see the hand of God on our lives when things are going well. But can you see the hand of God on your life when things are not going so well? You can't quite see what's happening. That's one of the things we're going to be taking a look at here as we look at Ezra. We'll be in Ezra chapter 7, covering the chapter here tonight. Verse 1. Now, last week we were looking at the uh, foundation of some of the groups like the scribes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. Kind of helps us to understand where those groups came from, what Jesus was dealing with, what the church was dealing with with these people. But here we'll pick up again at verse 1. Now, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amara, the son of Azariah, the son of Merath, the son of Zerahiah, and the son of Uzai, the son of Bukai, the son of Abushai, Abishua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nathanium came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. So Ezra came up to Jerusalem. This is a little over 60 years after the first group had arrived. Actually, it's more than 60 years after the first group arrived, but a little over 60 years after the completion of the temple, which we covered here in the previous chapters after they were uh, told by the prophets to get started on the project. They did. They finished it up. And Ezra comes here some 60 years old or 60 years later. It is possible. I haven't quite got an age on Ezra. I meant to try and figure out some some of that, but it's possible that many of the people that are making this trip, including Ezra, were not even born at the time that the first group went. So they didn't necessarily re-decide to go. Probably many of them had uh, not had the choice to go in the first group, and now that there was a choice for a new group going, they decided to, to go ahead and to join that. So, as we had talked about with Ezra, his name, this is uh, quoting Kidner, his name stands very high in Jewish tradition, where he came to be regarded as a second Moses. And indeed, it was he more than any other man who stamped Israel with its lasting character as the people of a book. That is Kidner and what he wrote about Ezra. Now, what was a scribe? For the Jewish culture of that day, a skilled scribe was an expert in the law of Moses, someone who was likely a highly trained lawyer in the word of God. So as we have lawyers that are highly trained on our laws and understand our laws and are there to present cases based on the, the law of the land, the scribes were basically the lawyers of the word. So they would be able to argue, they would be able to uh, enlighten, they should be able to uh, uh, talk to you about what's going on. So if you had a question about, is this legal, is this lawful, you would bring it to a scribe and say, this is what's going on in the family, this is what's going on with the inheritance, this is what's going on uh, wherever it might be. And they, knowing the law, as well as they do, being skilled on it, they would be able to help you with that as far as the law was concerned. That was their role. Now, at least from Ezra on, 
there were three main ministries of a scribe. It seems like Ezra added a third area to the scribe's ministry. I can't tell you for sure because we don't know too many scribes that were before Ezra. But Ezra, at least from his time on, there was a third aspect of the ministry of a scribe. But the three of them are, first off, to preserve the word of God. They were to preserve the word of God. I put in your parentheses, they're copying. They would copy the word of God. That's probably the most well-known uh, aspect of the scribe's ministry was to copy the text. So they would uh, get out a scroll and they would copy. I am told, this is way back in school, so it's decades ago, I was told that the process was of such that any time they would copy these, they would have two scribes at least involved. And so one scribe would look at the letter on the page that they're copying from and they would state what the letter was and then they would write the letter and then state the letter again. And a scribe would be watching over their shoulder. They would state the name of the letter and confirm the letter that they wrote by stating it as well. So you can see it's a very long process, but they were very meticulous to make sure that these things were copied correctly. And so that's what I was told uh, many decades ago that was the process of the scribe that was their ministry. So you kind of have to have a love for that sort of thing to be able to do it. But they were there to preserve the Word of God, to make sure that more copies were made because, of course, the paper that they had, that would deteriorate, so we had to always be making new copies so that that uh, that would continue to go on. The second was interpreting the Word of God or, in parentheses, I put applying. Interpreting the Word of God just as we said, like a lawyer interprets the law, they would interpret the law of God. And so you would come to them if you needed help in that. And the third aspect is seemed to be something that Ezra brought in, possibly was brought in before him, and he just picked up on it, but he's the first one we really have doing it. And that is to teach the Word of God. Or I put in parentheses, explaining. So preserve, interpret, and teach these were the roles of a scribe in, in this day. This is what they would do. How the scribes had fallen from the example that Ezra had left for them to the time when Jesus was there. You'll see in Matthew seven twenty nine and 23, in chapter 23, Matthew chapter 7, verse 29 and chapter 23, you can see some of the things that went on between Jesus and the scribes. There was a, a bit of a battle going on with them. Um, I have wrote a quote down here from Morgan. As messengers of the will of God, they took the place of the prophets. With this difference, instead of receiving new revelations, they explained and applied the old. Of this new order, Ezra was at once the founder and type. So as we said, it, we don't have anybody before him who was doing these things, but Ezra, Ezra seemed to be. So the prophets, they would receive a word from God and they would come and they would bring that word of God to the people. The scribes would take the word that had already been spoken and bring that to the people. They would interpret it. They would teach it. They would do these things. They focused on the old. The prophets would focus on the new. That was the difference between the, the ministries there. So the word says that some of the children of Israel decided to make a trip. So all these years later, some of them decided to go. Now, it could be that they heard the kind of things that were going on in the Jerusalem with the new people that are there. They may have heard, hey, the temple's built. 
things are going pretty good and maybe they wanted to get in on whatever was happening out there. Maybe it was that their life in Babylon wasn't quite what they had wanted it to be. Uh, maybe they just felt a call from God and they had things going on pretty well, but God had put that call in on them and they said, we're going to answer that. We're going to leave behind what we have and we're going to go. We don't know what the situation was, but you probably had a mixture of all kinds. Probably had some people who had nothing to lose and they just packed up and go. And some people who had a lot to leave behind, but they left behind anyway. And they went on out to Jerusalem. They made the trip here with Ezra. And over in my office, I had pulled down some pictures and then neglected to bring them on over. So uh, I don't know if we'll, uh, if we'll show it to you uh, another time. But the way in which they would go is kind of a northern route. So if you can get the picture, Jerusalem would be over here. And Babylon would be not quite directly over this, but actually a little bit south, but, but set back this way. And so what you would have to do is you would have to travel northward to come back down because of the mountainous regions or the things that were in the way. So you had to kind of make a long way around. So it's about a 500-mile trip to go from Babylon to Jerusalem if you got into a plane and flew straight there. But you're not doing that. So you turn a 500-mile trip into about a 900-mile trip. And they would walk this. That is quite an undertaking. So if you want to think about the distance that is there, if you were to go from, this is one of those distances that I know, if you were to go from this area around here out to Ocean City, New Jersey, that's about 100 miles. So if you made that trip walking it nine times. That would be what they would be going through here. Of course, they would be going through more of a mountainous region than you would be going through between here and the, the shore. It would be pretty flat. Jersey is not a real mountainous area. They went through a little bit more of a treacherous area to go through. But that at least gives you an idea of the distance that they would have. Um, it said here, let me read this this part of the verse again. That some of the people, verse 7, some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, these are the different groups of people that came, and the Nathinim came up to Jerusalem. Now this group here, the Nathinim, it's kind of an interesting group. We'll find them mentioned over in First Chronicles 9, 1 through 2. If you want to just write that down, I'll read it for you. So all Israel was recorded by gene- genealogies, and indeed, they were inscribed in the book of the kings of Israel. But Judah was carried away captive to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. And the first inhabitants who dwelt in their positions, uh, possessions in their cities were Israelites, priests, Levites, and the Nathanium. So that group, specific group is mentioned. Ezra 8, 17, and 20 mentions them as well. And I gave them a command for Ido, the chief man at the palace, I'm sorry, to place Cassiphia. And I told them what they should do to Ido and his brethren, the Nathanium, at the place of Cassiphia, that they should bring us servants for the house of our God. In verse 20 of chapter 8 also, the Nathanium, whom David and the leaders had appointed for the service of the Levites, 220 Nathanium, all of them were designated by name. We're not given the specific origin of who this group is. There's some guesswork that we can do. The name means given ones or those set apart. That's what the name means. Some translations actually translate them as slaves. 
um, cannot tell you that they were slaves. They seem to be temple servants. They seem to be a group of people who did the uh, menial work that was required at the temple so that the Levites and the priests didn't have to do the wood cutting, the water carrying, and so forth, things like that. Uh, some have thought that they originated with the Midianites because the Israel conquered the Midianites in battle and God told Moses to select certain of the people, cattle, donkey, sheep, or other animals, and to give them to the Levites. And so that they were available to the Levites. And uh, the word also said, who are responsible for the care of the Lord's tabernacle. So it seemed that they, at that point that some of the Midianites were given to them, and they may have begun to make up this group, but the group was very likely added to later when Joshua made the treaty with the Gibeonites. And it was a specific treaty, you will become water carriers and woodcutters and so forth. So it seems that they also were part of the ones that would carry the water, cut the wood, because you're going to be doing a lot of sacrifices, you need some wood. So it seems like they were the people that were there to to do that. The Gibeonites, of course, they said when they were told that they would become uh, the workers for these things, they said, we're, we're glad to do so, because the other option was to die. And they uh, didn't want to do that. So they're mentioned in First Chronicles, they're mentioned in Ezra, they're mentioned in Nehemiah. We see them, uh, that name particularly come up. It seems like this group uh, developed and they came up with a name for themselves. And they are around until the New Testament. In the New Testament, this group is no longer mentioned. We see most people that, that uh, study this kind of thing out in history, they believe that they were either absorbed in the general Jewish population or they were possibly assimilated into the uh, to the the Levites, the tribe of Levi, since they were doing a lot of the work that was there. Some of the people who wrote in the Talmud, some of the writers there, they would speak of this group with great contempt. So there were at least some people who saw them as outcasts. They saw them as uh, uh, people that were less than, their own citizens or the their Israelites, they were there, they would forbid them from marrying. So there was a distaste that was with some of the group of the Jews involving these folks, which is really odd since this group was so involved in the sacrificial service in the temple upkeep. But uh, that's all we can do to put together today, except one other thing I wanted to let you know. The Jehovah's Witness use the term Nathinim to refer to elders serving immediately under the governing body. <laughs> so I guess they pulled that out there and decided to make them um, to use this term for, for them. Anyway, verse 8. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. It's not too hard to do the math on this one. Ezra took four months to make the trip. He went with a, with a crowd. More than likely that crowd is made up of women, children, animals. So you cannot just go at the pace of a couple of people. Ezra may have been able to handle the pace at a, a faster pace, but you got to go at the pace of the group. Of all the people that are in there, you know, some of the women that are going, maybe they're pregnant. Maybe the, some of the people that are going are um, uh, have some physical cap- uh, inabilities. You don't know what the group is, but you have a group that large. You're going to have some people that are not as quick as others, and you're only as good as the slowest person. You can't leave them behind. So 
It took them four months to get there to cover the 900 miles. That is 120 days that it would take. I'm sorry, 100 and yeah, 120 days, 30 days in a month. So 120 days. So you can do the math and pretty much figure out how many miles they were doing uh, per day. And it's not a lot. It's not a whole lot of, of stuff there. But more than likely, you know, being Jews, they're only going six days out of the week. There's probably one day they are not traveling. They would consider that to be a Sabbath. There was a rest day, so they wouldn't do that. But still, you're not covering a whole lot of miles in the course of a day. But it, they, uh, they did make it. It was four months to make the trip. Verse 10 says this. Very interesting verse here in verse 10. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Now, not many people pursue this process, but look at this process that he had. It's important enough that it made the word of God. Now, you might say, well, Ezra wrote the book. Ezra, no, Ezra put in the book what God told him to put in the book. And God instructed him, make sure you write down this. I want people to know the process that you went through. This is a good process. This is a process that more people should be picking up. Take a look at what he says. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. He did not say he prepared his head. He did not go after this in a soulish way. He did not go after this in a natural way. He got his spirit involved. He prepared his spirit to follow this process. There are many Christians who will follow this process, be very fleshly about it. They only do it as far as their head is concerned. And as soon as my head does not receive some things, then we're off. But he said he prepared his heart, or you could also read it, he prepared his spirit to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach the statutes and ordinances in the Lord. So let's take a look at this. First off, the first part of the process is to seek. That is to understand. The first part of the process is to seek. That is to understand. Too many Christians do not do this first thing. We do not do the seeking. We don't get the understanding. I see somebody who did something and I just go out there and do it. You know, for a while we saw people, they would get up and they would say, I, I decree and declare. And so then everybody was going out there and do it. I decree and declare. No one sought after God. No one sought after the Word. No one got, went into the Word of God to figure out what does the Word say about this? How should I go about doing it? It's just brother, sister, so-and-so did it. I'm doing it like they did. So I decree and decre- declare. I decree and declare. And people would come out and they would say that. Uh, it got to be so common, I would hear people say that, I almost get turned off to it because I'm thinking, have you actually sought, is that, sought that out? Is that actually something that's in your spirit or is it just in your head? Is it just something you heard other people do? Because a lot of times we hear people that have done something and they were successful. Well, so-and-so called this thing sold. You know, Brother Caps was good about that. He'd come out there and teach you, uh, call the thing sold. And he'd give you examples and he'd teach you in Scripture. But see, he sought and got understanding on that, took that understanding, and then went out there and did it. Now, a lot of people are just hearing that. Well, I can go out there and do that too. They don't do the seeking to understand. They just do it. So the first thing he did was he, he sought. He sought after this. He went into the law of God. He sought the law of God. He wanted to understand, all right, if the law of God is teaching me to do this, if the law of God is commanding me to do this, if the law of God is telling me these are the things that I should be operating on, these are the things I should be thinking on, why? 
And he wanted to understand why this was going to go on. How am I supposed to do this? How are we supposed to carry this out? He wanted to get in there and understand it. This is a step that a lot of Christians do not take. I just want to hear somebody teach me what to do. And I just want to go out there and copy it. I want to go out there and mimic it. You cannot do that. You got to get in there and you got to understand what is going on. So this is the first part of the process. You got to seek and you got to understand. So that's what he did. The second part of the process is do. So first seek, then do. But don't do until you seek and understand. You got to get in there and understand it. So if you hear somebody teach you something to do, then you got to get into the Word of God to find out what is the Word of God saying about this. So one of the things that always uh, drives me uh, away from listening to somebody who's, uh, who's teaching, I'll listen to somebody on YouTube and they're teaching something, uh, and I've heard this done by a few, they'll get out there and say, well, I know the Bible doesn't teach this, but... And then they go on to tell you what they do. I know this is not in the Word, but it always works for so-and-so. So-and-so always did it. And so they'll, they'll use that as an, as an example. No, no, no. Seek to understand first. Why? Maybe they made a mistake. Maybe they were ignorant of some stuff. It's amazing how much God can work through when we are ignorant of certain things. But as soon as I get the knowledge of it, it turns it off. It, it don't work no more. <laughs> Was it uh, uh, Brother Hagen, Brother Price, they would both teach us some things about how uh, there were certain people in their families they could carry on their faith for a while. But then there came a point when they knew and they needed to stand on their own. And uh, that was important to, to do. Uh, Brother, Brother Hagen would talk about Ken Jr. He that uh, Ken Jr. got to the point where he had heard Brother Hagin preach these messages on faith so often he could preach them himself. And it came a point where the Lord told him, he says, no, he needs to stand on this on his own. He need, he's, he's got the understanding. He's got to go after it. He's got to begin to, to do it on his own. And Dad couldn't cover that for him. There are some times that we have been ignorant of some things. And because of that ignorance... Things work. Things go about and they, and they, and they work. And it is, it's okay. But then once I either come to an understanding or had the opportunity. Oh, I'll tell you what. We don't mess up on this one. If you have the opportunity to learn something and decide not to learn it, you are still responsible. You had the opportunity to learn. You decided not to. And that can turn off some things in your life. But you may have been doing some things that are wrong in the word. But God is able to say they don't know. They're ignorant of that. But once you come to the understanding that this is not in the word, this is not something that you should do, this is not a direction that we ought to go, and you do it anyway, now you are disobedient to the word that you know. And that will turn off the power of God in your life. So make sure, get out there and understand the thing. Find out what the Word is saying. Get the understanding of it going on. You can know it, but you got to get in there and understand it. I still remember when we were out there at Ramah, and I was in orientation, and Brother Price was teaching us. Uh, that's where he taught faith, foolishness, and presumption. It became a book later on, but he was teaching us that. 
I remember him teaching us when he decided to stand on the word of God only. And uh, his, his particular story was he got a cold. Anybody remember him telling that story? <laughs> he got a cold. And he said, uh, I decided I'm not taking any cold medic- medication, no aspirin. I'm not doing anything. I'm just using my faith. And he said, I had that cold for six weeks. <laughs> he said, in the natural, you don't have a cold for six weeks. But he was battling something spiritually. If he did not have that understanding in his spirit, then when that battle was up, there would have been, there would have been a struggle. You may have uh, seen this. If you have a, a strong-willed child, if you raise a strong-willed child, you know that there's times when that strong-willed child will come and clash with you. And you've got to sit there and do battle. And it may take hours, many, many hours of intense battle. Now, I'm not talking about spanking and smacking around. All, just you are engaged in this because this child wants to win and you know you can't let the child win. And so you are engaged in the battle and this continues to go on. And you almost want to say, oh, I just, I just let them have it. I mean, it's just not worth fighting for. No, you realize if I don't stay here and, and stay with this fight, then the battle's going to be worse the next time. And so you learn to, to get in there to stay with it. That's what Brother Price did. He stayed with it. And it may have taken him six weeks to get over that, but he's had other healing stories since then, much bigger, much tougher things, and he got through it much faster because he stayed with it. But he stayed with it because he had the understanding. He understood. This may not be working exactly as fast as I want it to be working, but I know the principles because he spent the time to seek after God on it. He had that in him. Seek first. Get the understanding first, then go out there and practice it, then get out there and do what you understand to do. Then teach it. So seek, do, before you teach it. There's a whole lot of people in the body of Christ, they hear something, they get excited about it, and they want to go out there and teach other people. There's even ministers. They get excited about something and they want to go out there and teach it, but they haven't done it themselves. You got to do it yourself. You got to get out there, understand it, and then do it. And then you can teach other people. It's kind of like if you had a computer person and they were going to explain to you how to fix the thing on your Mac computer. Then you find out they don't even own a Mac computer. Well, how are you going to teach me how to fix this? Well, I read all the books. But you haven't actually done it. No. no. Now, you bring me your Mac computer. I may know computers, but I'll drop it in a moment. No, I'll drop it on the ground. But <laughs> I'll, get, I'll get out of that one. Because I know I'm not, I have not done it on a Mac. You give me a Windows computer, I can do all kinds of things with it. But if it's a, if it's a Mac computer, you know, I'll get you over to Todd. I'll get you over to somebody else who's actually worked on a Apple computer and knows how they work. Because they, they work completely different. I know how I, uh, how a Windows machine thinks because I've thought that way since they came out in the 80s. I've been, I've been thinking that way. My mind has gone in the way of the DOS. I go all the way back to the DOS days. I've, I've worked with a, with a DOS problem and I still sometimes to this day get out of Windows, go into a DOS to fix the computer because I still understand some of the things. Not, I've lost some of it, but I still understand that. But I, I know you can't do that in the Mac. And I know there's ways to fix things that are in the Mac, but I'd let people that are, that are used to that. Because you gotta have somebody who's done it. 
I can maybe read the instructions, but anybody can read the instructions and do what's in the instructions. You need somebody who's got the hands on, who's actually been in there, has actually done it. This is what we're looking for here. This is what Ezra does. First, he understands the law. Secondly, he does it. He went out there and he did the thing that the law said before he went out there and taught it. This is something we got to make sure we do. Don't teach what you don't do and don't do what you don't understand. This is a great process. It's in the Word. It's in the Word for a good reason. You ought to follow this process. Spend the time on the seeking. Spend the time getting the understanding. Do you remember the parable of the sower? Some of the seed sprouted up, but why did it die? There was no roots. And when the intensity of the sun came down upon it, it dried it up. Because they did not spend the time to understand. So when they got into the doing, the sun dried them up. We've got to make sure we spend time to understand. And I don't, I'm not telling you how long it takes to understand. You might be able to understand something in an hour. It might take you a month. It might take you a year. I don't know how long it might take you to understand. Sometimes the angel came down to Daniel. And with the instructions, make him understand. I took that to mean don't leave until he understands it. He could understand it that time, at that time. Jesus told parables, taught things to the disciples. He expected them to understand it at the time. He didn't expect them to have to go away and figure this out. What, you don't understand this? How are you going to understand the other things? Nicodemus comes. You don't understand this principle? How are you a teacher of the law? How is it that you teach other people? How is it that you have an, you don't have the understanding? You're obviously not doing, but yet you're a teacher. Jesus expected the same process to be going on. Understand, do, and then teach. We're not called to just be hearers of the word. Matthew 7:24 says this, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Only difference is what they did. You gotta hear the word, you gotta get yourself to the place where I understand it, and then go out there and do what the word said to do. Not what you want it to say, but what the Word said. That's why we got to spend time to seek after the Word. What is the Word of God commanding me to do? What is it expecting me to, be, to do? What am I supposed to do in this? And then go out there and do it. It's, it doesn't help you at all if you just grab whatever meaning you want and go out there and do that and then teach that. That's not going to help. That's not going to make you be founded on the rock. Matthew twenty-one twenty-eight. what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Well, that's pretty close, pretty clear right there. <laughs> he, I don't care what you say. If what you're doing isn't backing it up. That's, that was more concerned. 
He was not so concerned that the son said, no, I won't go. He was focused on the fact that the son decided, I'm going to go and do. That's the will of my father. He went out there and he did it. He wasn't impressed by the one son who said, I'll go out there and do it, and then doesn't go. It's the doing. We've got to get into the word. We've got to seek to understand it, and then do it. James 1, 22, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If we do not do the word that we hear and understand, we are deceiving ourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not forgetful, not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If we're not as blessed in what we do, make sure that you are doing what you hear. Goes on in verse, verse 11. This is a copy of the letter the king Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of God of heaven. Perfect peace, Peace and so forth. I wonder if that's in the actual letter or if they just abbreviated that. I don't know. I'll have to wait until we, we get there. But perfect peace and so forth. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. So he's given a decree. He's encouraging people to go. The king is encouraging others to go with Ezra. But it's up to them. Now the king's encouragement is there, but it's likely that they followed the leading of the Lord. The Lord probably led them, but they said, well, the king's encouraging you to go. If people went because the king encouraged them, they probably won't have as much to overcome some of the adversities. But if you go because the Lord is leading you, that's a different thing. If you want an example of this, you can uh, uh, look at, we tithe what's uh, our income. We tithe the tenth of our income in obedience to the Lord and his word. But the government has also encouraged us. It gives us a tax write-off for anything that we contribute, not just to churches, but to, to any uh, charitable organization. I don't tithe because of the write-off. I tithe in obedience to the Word of God. But this is the case where the government is encouraging us to do so. This is the same kind of thing with, uh, with Ezra here. The king encouraged people to go, but that's not necessarily the reason that you would go. And whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and whereas you are to carry the silver and gold, which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, and whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon, along with the free will offering of the people and the priests are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. Now, Ezra's trip certainly is obedience to God's call. Now, I think of all people, Ezra has the call of God to go. But he's also on a mission for the king. Now, perhaps Ezra asked the king, Hey, I want to go over to Jerusalem. I want to do some things over there. And the king found it within his purpose to send Ezra. That is a possibility. Ezra approaches the king. King, I'm, I'm feeling like I need to go to Jerusalem aid in some of the things that are going on down there. And so the king said, well, you know what? 
I can find a reason to send you. I'll send you down there, and this is what I have for you to do. Uh, and he got his seven counselors apparently involved with that. It's probably less likely that Ezra found God's purpose in a king's request. I think it's less likely that the king came to Ezra and said, Hey, Ezra, you're from Jerusalem. I got a mission down there. How about if you go on down there and take care of this mission for me? And then he sought after God and God says, yeah, go ahead and do that. And I think that's less likely than Ezra approached the king about it with a purpose from God. And the king found his own purpose in it. But there is no doubt that Ezra is going. And part of it is the purpose of the king. Now, the vessels that he is sending, they are either ones that were found that they had been overlooked when the first group went down, because the first group went down, they got all those things that Babylon had taken and they sent them with it. But it could be that they found some in some other storage spot. Oh, what? Where are these things going? Oh, it looks like there's some of the things for the temple that we missed. And so they were maybe put aside for when they would be able to make a trip on down there. Or the king may have made up some gold and some silver uh, utensils and they sent them with them. Maybe even a combination of the two. But anyway, they're going with some more gold and silver for the temple. They're going with some more financing for the temple. Verse 17, Now therefore be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. And whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and gold, do it according to the will of your God. Now, there's certainly a trust that the king has with Ezra. So Ezra has a, a good relationship with the king. The king understands that Ezra does things uh, really well, that he's very diligent. So he trusts him. He uh, does make sure, he says, look, I make sure that this money is there. I want you to buy some bulls. I want you to buy some rams. I want you to buy some lambs. I want you to do whatever you need to do to make some sacrifices. Because when you get down there and you make this sacrifice, I want you to make your God happy with me. That's his whole idea. I want your God to be happy with me because of what's going on down there. So I am financing this. I am sending some stuff for you. This is a, this is a thing that we want to do. Now, the king is certainly open to God asking for or requiring something beyond what the king knows. The king says, I don't know this God. So you get on down there. And I know that you need some bulls. I know you need some lambs. I know you need some of these things that are in there. But you get down there and your God may say, I want this. I want to make sure that you got the money to do it. So whatever it is that your God says, I want you to add this. I want you to make this. I want you to do this. I want you to have the funds to do it. And so the king equipped him with money to be able to accomplish all these things. So you're wandering on a 900-mile trek with gold and silver objects. And money to finance the beautifying of the temple. The temple's already built. It's there. But we want to make this thing even more beautiful. I'm sure that they depend on the house or the, the hand of God to be upon them for safety to not lose this, this money. But it's, it's not like, you know, you can put it onto an account and when you get on down there, use the card to get it out, have it wired to you. There's none of that kind of stuff going on. If you don't bring it with you, you don't have it. So this is the kind of thing that's, that's going on that they're facing. And they have that money on their person for four months out there in the wilderness. As far as I know, they don't have any army to protect them. And they made it there, apparently, without any incident that is recorded in Ezra's writing. 
probably not without incident. I don't think you make a four-mile or a four-month trip without incident. They probably had some kind of things that went on, but nothing made it into the Word of God. Nothing was worth writing about. Verse 19. Also, the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. So all these articles I'm giving you, you deliver them there to the house of your God. Verse 20. And whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay for it from the king's treasury. So they apparently could make a draw on the king's treasury. And we know from uh, before that they would get that from the tax money that would be collected in the area. They wanted to send all the way back to the uh, capital to get it. And I, even I, Artaxerxes, the king, issued a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river that whatever Ezra, the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven may require of you, let it be done diligently up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribed limit. So this is what he wrote him a check for. That's, I guess, uh, how they wrote checks back then. They just put it into a decree. They'd write it down. And you got up to this amount of amount of money. A hundred talents of silver. So if they came on in and said, Hey, we need one of those talents. We've got to fix this thing over here. We've got to do this over here. All right. Well, you got this many more. And they would uh, just keep a, a writing tab on that. Because they have this right there. This has authorized them. If they want to show it on their books. Well, some of our money that came off was given to Jerusalem per your decree. Uh-huh. That's all perfectly fine. And so all this was, was being done in the kingdom. So from this we can see some things. That there are two different kinds of laws. And sometimes we Christians get them mixed up. First kind of law is spiritual law. There is spiritual law and there is natural law. Those are the two kind of laws that we will face out here. First off, spiritual law. This is authority over demons, principalities, powers. This would include the influence these would wield upon the leaders of natural things. So I can have authority over principalities and powers that would wield influence over those that govern the land. They would try and steer them in a, in a wrong direction. I cannot use that spiritual power to cause men to decide something. But I can use that spiritual power against the principalities and powers that would be like the wind on the sea that would drive up the waves. I can use that authority toward the wind, just like Jesus did on the lake. And you can speak to the wind, so to speak. That's a, that's a spiritual law. Daniel, you'll see this, Daniel, and not eating meat offered to idols, asked permission to eat only vegetables. Well, he saw that there was a spiritual law that was in place here. And so they all got together, they, they prayed, they were given a plan. They uh, put that plan out there and uh, they, God worked with them, made them look better than everybody else that was there. And the man who was in charge was influenced in such a way to go their way. I'm sure that the devil would just love to have made them eat meat offered to idols. And they didn't want to do that. To them, it compromised what they wanted to do, what they felt they should do. Paul and Silas were in prison. God sent an earthquake and changed the mind of those that were guarding them. 
Remember the guy who was ready to kill himself because he thought the, well, all the doors are open. Everybody has uh, probably fled, left the, left the place. He's, he's ready to kill himself. Paul says, no, 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 don't do that. We're all still here. And so the man who was guarding him changed his mind, took Paul and Silas to his house, bandaged up their wounds, heard the gospel, and his household got saved. The authority is over the influence. It is not over the person. We have to make sure that we understand spiritual authority. Use spiritual authority in spiritual places. You cannot use spiritual authority to cause people to decide something, to go a particular way. I can't use spiritual authority that people would get born again. In Paul and Silas's case, they got born again because Paul and Silas used their authority against the principalities and powers that would influence the area. But they still had to preach the gospel to them and they still had to receive it, which they did. Natural law. These are those laws made by leaders and those in power. Spiritual laws are those that are laws that are made by God and affect the realm of the spirit. Natural laws are those made by leaders and those that are in, in power, governors, mayors, you know, those, those kind of people that would be in a place to make laws. Some go along with God, but some go against Him. There are some natural laws that go along with the things of God. We're seeing some here in the book of Ezra where there are some natural laws, some decrees that Cyrus made, that Artaxerxes made, that go along with what God wants to do, but there's also some that go against what He wants to do. We are not bound by the word to obey those laws that we see as contrary to God's law. We are not bound. But you are also not divinely absolved from its penalties. We cannot say, well, I don't, I don't have to pay the penalty of breaking this law because that law is against the things of God. The people in the word of God, Daniel, um, his buddies, you know, Hananiah, they, they, uh, they all paid the price for what was going on, for what they did. If you don't bow down to this, you get thrown into the fiery furnace. Well, go ahead and throw us in. We're not leaving. We're not going to bow down to your, to your, your thing. So they broke the natural law knowing that they would face the natural penalty. They knew that supernaturally it didn't excuse them from that penalty. But they basically said there's another law in operation and you can throw us in your fiery furnace but it won't have an effect on us. And that's what, uh, that's what happened. Daniel said, well, you can throw me in the den of, of, of uh, lions, but it won't have an effect on me. And it didn't. So understand that there are natural laws. Some are going to go against the things of God. You are not bound as a Christian to go along with any law that causes you to disobey the Word of God. Just make sure you properly understand the Word of God that you are on the same page with God and God says, no, that's something that you don't need to be, be doing. And then if you disobey, there will be a penalty that will come for it. Now, some people in the New Testament, we saw there were a lot of people who lost their lives because they were doing what God said and would not go along with the natural law that said bow down to this or do this or whatever it might be. And even in the book of Revelation, we see that's still going to go on. That not all the martyrs were even there. And John said, who are these people? Well, not all of them have come, but these are the martyrs. These are the people that have died in the, in the uh, tribulation period. But we are not bound by the word to obey those laws that we see as contrary to God's law. But you're also not divinely absolved from its penalties. These laws are in three realms. 
No blanks you got to fill out there. I want to make sure you got all this. But first off, the three realms are, first off, preventative. Basically, thou shalt not. In the natural, we have laws that thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not defraud, thou shalt not counterfeit. Uh, you can just keep on going on. There's a whole lot of thou shalt nots in the law. Uh, these are things that you are not to do. They're basically to keep us from harming others, ourselves, or society. That's basically what they're there for. I'm not saying that they'll accomplish that. I'm just saying that's what they're basically there for. There are, of course, some nonsensical laws that are on the books as well. And they prevent stuff, but I don't know what they were really intended for. You ever seen those uh, people, they, they cover some of these really old laws, especially the, the, the cities on this side of the country, Boston, Philadelphia, uh, some of these really old cities. They have some stuff on the laws that it's still there on the books. I don't, I don't have any in the top of my head, but I mean, you just shake your head and what are they thinking making this law? Something happened that they had to make that law. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to us anymore, but it's, uh, some of them are still on the books. But the idea of most of these natural laws is to keep us from harming others, harming ourselves, or harming society. Same thing with God. God has prevented it. He'll have thou shalt not. He doesn't want us to do things that will harm ourselves. He doesn't want to do things that will harm other people. And he doesn't want us to do things that will harm the church, the society that we're in. The second group is the permissive. Thou shalt, basically. Thou shalt do these things. Uh, in the natural, thou shalt pay your taxes by April 15th. Right? <laughs> these are to encourage us to benefit others, ourselves, or society. That's what the, the permissive is. We want you to do these things. We want you to, um, to take advantage of this. There's a benefit to you. There's a benefit to others. There's a benefit to society in this and there's also spiritual laws on this. God will say these are things that you should do. God wants you to lay hands on the sick. He wants you to take authority over, over spiritual things. This will benefit you. This will benefit the people that are around you. This will benefit the church. So you will have a benefit on the world if we do our, our things right. So pre- preventative, permissive, and third, authoritative. These are empowering in operation. So the first is the things that you're not supposed to do. The second is the things that you should do. And the third are those that are empowering an operation. The uh, uh, Every country, of course, handles this differently. But the idea of carrying a weapon, this is something that's empowering. It's in our Constitution. It's something that is, uh, that's, a, that's a right. Of course, uh, some states have already corrupted it. And they feel like they have to issue a uh, permit in order for you to operate in the thing that the Constitution said is your right. And then there's other states that uh, they don't have that. I guess I, I forget what they, they have a term for them. But you can just uh, go out there and buy a gun and carry it and you don't have to have any kind of a special permit for that. But there are authoritative or empowering and operation laws that are out there. In the Word of God, He empowers us to speak the Word. He empowers us to use the name of Jesus. These are things that we can do. There are uh, empowering laws on the books that give you the power of attorney that you can carry on the affairs in another person's absence. There's also things in the spiritual realm that God has done that he wants you to carry on the affairs of Jesus in his absence. 
That's why we go out and we use His name. We carry out the affairs of Jesus. We carry out the will of Jesus here in this world. We've been given that same kind of power. These are here to empower us to help others, to help ourselves, or to help society or the church. There is a cost to go against laws in either realm. There is a cost to go against natural laws. There is a cost to go against spiritual laws. Here's the difference. The natural is enforced by man. Natural laws are enforced by man. But only if you are caught and mercy is not given will you receive a penalty. Most of these simply have a cost of disobeying. There's not a uh, reward for obeying as much as there is a cost for disobeying in the natural laws. But the spiritual is different. The spiritual has a cost or a reward. It can go either way. And regardless of being caught or seen by man, that reward or that cost comes. That's the difference between spiritual and natural laws here. Verse 23 of Ezra. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it diligently be done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? I don't want God mad at me. Make sure when you're over there, do everything that God wants you to do. I'm not telling you that I know what it is, but Ezra, you are skilled in things of God's word. You understand the law of, of your God. So I am trusting you to do everything. That's why in the beginning of the letter it talks about Ezra's expertise here. I am trusting you to do what you know to do to make sure that when this is carried out, your God does not come after me and say it wasn't done right. Why should we pay the, why should we suffer the wrath of your God because you don't do it right? So the king is motivated by what God might do to him if Ezra does not do all that is needed. This is the world's viewpoint. They do things out of what God, out of fear of what God might do to them. Well, you had to be careful doing that. That lightning bolt might come down and get you. They have a fear that if I'm doing the wrong thing, that God will come out and get me. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us to obey because of what God has done for us, not out of fear of what God will do to us. Legalism is bringing the view of the world into the church. We do things because of fear of what God will do to us. That is legalism. That is why. Do Make sure you do all these things because if you don't, God won't bless you. God won't do this. God will bring this down upon you. That's legalism. Don't let the ideas of the world come into your belief. God wants to reward us for the things that are there. The penalty is what will come to us because we've stepped out of line. And God says, don't step out of line. Don't go out in the street when the cars are coming. I don't want you to get hit. How many Christians follow God in the pattern of the world? Make sure that we don't get numbered among them. Verse 24, also we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, the thinims, or servants of the house of God. None of these folks that are working on this house, I don't want any of them taxed. They are tax free. He is trying to promote the work of the temple in Jerusalem. So he has commanded that the priests and other workers at the temple are all given tax exempt status. Now Darius had ordered a similar exemption for the cult servants of Apollo. It wasn't just something that was done for the house of God. 
that has been done in some of the others. And I'm sure that if you go through Greek history, Roman history, you will find that some of their temple priests and priestesses had the similar things going on. But anyway, he's going to extend this over here to the people working on the temple. Verse 25, And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and teach those who do not know them. So he's telling them, I want you to take all your God-given wisdom and I want you to appoint people. I want you to appoint judges over the people. I want you to have people in there that will operate in wisdom, that operate according to the things of God. I want you to, to look at all those people that are beyond the river. Make sure that they know the laws of your God. I want you to go out there, make sure that they're following what the law of God should do because if they are not, he's scared that it's going to come back down on him. And teach those who do not know them. So he tells them to set magistrates. He's given them quite a bit of a, quite a significant amount of authority in the civil administration of the province. Remember, there was already a governor in the region, but he is giving him some of that authority. It's in the letter. You can show that letter to the governor. This is from the king. He, um, Verse 26, all such as know the laws of your God and teach those who do not know them, whoever, verse 26, whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. So if you've got people out there and they're not going to observe what your law says, I'm giving you authority here. You can execute judgment on him. You can do it speedily. You can decide, are they deserving of death, banishment? Should all their goods be taken away? Or should they just be imprisoned? I'm going to leave it up to your wisdom. If they're not obeying the law of God, then you get to execute. Now, you can see where this can be corrupted, can't you? You can see where this can go bad. Basically, those who know, those who don't know, and those who disobey. He's getting them to, to work with all of them. Perhaps this is a little bit too much authority to put. Now, Ezra might be a good guy. If you remember in the founding of our country, we wanted to put a whole lot of authority into the hands of one person. And George Washington said, no. <laughs> we have seen how that works. We've been under King George. We wanted to get out from that. We are not going to spend all this, all these lives, all this blood that has been shed to just go under another king. No, we need to be doing something different. And so the, he refused to be made king and instead, uh, reluctantly, from what I'm told, became president and um, they went on uh, from there. And there was some restriction on that authority. Now, to those outside of the wisdom of God, this authority might seem like a good idea. But we can certainly see that that's not that's something that's going to go on real, real well. But Ezra took this task on. He went over there to try and to teach the people and to help the people. Verse 27. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. So he is giving God thanks. He is seeing the good things that are going on. The king has decided to beautify the house of God and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of my Lord my God was upon me and I gathered leading men 
of Israel to go up with me. So he wasn't just waiting for people to say, hey, I'm going to go with you. He said, hey, I could really use someone like you. Will you come along? And so he's out there recruiting some. He targeted some people that he wanted, some people that would help him in the task that was at hand. And he targeted them, recruited them. I'm sure there are some people who said no or some people who said yes, though. And he heads on off. But it, because of all these good things that were going on, he says that he saw the hand of God on him. How easy it is for us to see the hand of God upon our work when things are going well. When we see that people are agreeing with us, that people want to finance what it is that we're doing. You know, if we wanted to buy a house and the bank gave us the, the note, oh, God has given us favor. We can see the hand of God working. We got this thing going on. Whenever things are going in our direction, then we can see that. If we had a medical issue and we go to the doctor and the doctor gives us a good report, oh, God, the hand of God is on us. Thank you, Lord. And we're glad we're getting a good report. It's easy to see the hand of God upon our work when everything is going well. But those who develop their faith, patience, and hope can see the hand of God when things don't seem to be progressing. That's when you know you're growing. When you can see the hand of God on what you're doing, when things don't look like they're going so well, that's when you know things are going pretty well. Here's some examples. Abraham, a year before Isaac was born, things were not going well. He's getting older. Sarah's getting older. But all of a sudden, his eyes are open and he can see this thing working. All of a sudden, he's got faith for it. And Isaac was born. Up until then, he's having a hard time seeing this. But then he got it. Joshua at Ai. Things aren't going well. Joshua, after the treaty was signed, they find out they're within the land, the Gibeonites. Things aren't going well. Boy, it's, it's, it can be difficult to see the hand of God. You can just begin to say, you know what? I think God chose the wrong guy. I'm obviously making mistakes. Uh, let's get somebody else in here. Joseph saw the call of God on his life, had the dreams. Then he was sold as a slave, became a prisoner in Egypt. It's hard to see the hand of God when things aren't going so well. Joseph, though, was able to do it. And he continued on the path that he was supposed to go on. David was being chased by Saul. He had the anointing of God on him to become king. He's running around being chased by Saul. No one wants to help him. He's helping other people. No one's helping him. Yeah, but when uh, after that anointing, he's at back home there with the sheep. No one seems to respect him. No one seems to care about him. We have already talked about some of the things going on with his home life. Elisha was surrounded in the city. Things did not seem to be going so well. His servant was all scared. Because the servant couldn't see what Elisha could see. But Elisha, he's very calm. Oh, let me tell you what. There's more with us than are with them. And then he prayed that God would open up his eyes and he saw. Jeremiah, he even gave up for a time. But things were not going well in the ministry of Jeremiah. He did not have many recruits, many people who repented, many people who listened. Most people just wanted to beat him up for the things that he was saying. Throw him into prison. It was very tough, but he continued to go on. Daniel at the lion's den, Hananiah at the fiery furnace. This is uh, these are things don't seem to be going so well, but they stayed with it. There's also some people we can see that they didn't see Abraham when he first came to the promised land. He saw that there was a, uh, a famine and he left. Moses at the burning bush, 
God is telling him all kinds of things are going to happen. He said, no, no, no. <laughs> That's not going to happen here. He can't see it. Saul waiting for Samuel to come and make the sacrifice. He sees all the people leaving. He can't see that God and his hand is, God's hand is on this thing. And he decides, I got to make the sacrifice myself. Jeroboam couldn't see the hand of God on his life because the thoughts came about a dim future. And he decided to believe it. The disciples after Jesus' crucifixion, they couldn't see much of a future, even though Jesus told them about it. Let's go fishing. And they decided to, to leave it and to go, and they were sad. For each of these, their success or lack of the success before God was in how they used the supernatural and the natural laws in their favor. Get the wisdom of God. And understand how to use the supernatural laws in the supernatural realm and the natural laws in the natural realm. Feeling encouraged, you can see the hand of God. Just like Ezra expressed here. It's great. It's beneficial. But the lack of it is not an excuse that holds water with God. No one was able to come in the word of God and said, Well, God, I didn't see your hand on it. We weren't having a whole lot of success. So I gave up. I did not hold water in any situation at all. God will stay patient with us like he did with Abraham. And he did it with others. But his goal is to bring us along. That we become people who can see the hand of God without any physical evidence. What is our attitude like? When those who can't see as far as we can. What kind of attitude do I have to the people that are around me? They can't see out as far as I can. I can see the hand of God on something even though other people can't see it. What's my attitude like with them? Are we like Elisha with his servant? Patient? Loving? Caring? Praying for him? Or are we more like the disciples who want to call down fire? Well, they can't see the hand of God on us. Let's call down fire and burn them up. (laughs) Which one are we more like? Make sure that you're using the supernatural laws and the natural laws in the way that God intended. And keep your eyes on what God is saying. Don't, don't be looking at all the things that are going on that the world can see, that the natural eye can see. You've got to look into the spiritual realm. We've got to be able to be like a Jeremiah who can see absolutely no success in what he is doing at all and still maintain and do what God is saying to do. Because that's really all God wants us to do. Just do what I've asked you to do. I'm not asking you to be successful like other people around you want you to be successful. I'm asking you to do what I have told you to do, what I've commissioned you to do. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you that you look upon our life with the success. Do we have the fruit of obedience? Because the world is looking for the fruit of the prophecies, the fruit of the Demons being cast out. The fruit. So many natural things. Signs and wonders. That's what they want to see. But Father. You look for the fruit of obedience. You look for the fruit. Of staying true and faithful. We want to make sure we. We do those things. We thank you for it. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.